Welcome to the Gorilla Social Work Podcast, your refuge for unfiltered ear hustle about the gritty realities of forensic social work. No posturing, no hidden agendas, just evidence-driven discussions. What's good, Gorilla Social Workers? Gear up for another intoxicating banter cast with your hosts, Jeff, Soul Snatcher Moore, and yours truly, Mace Warren. Jeff and I are both forensic psychotherapists that specialize in rehabilitating the rogues of our society. We love sharing our misguided musings with all of you, and we thank you so much for your ongoing listenership. Sorry to, sorry to report, folks, but therapy as we know it has been canceled. The boys respond to political commentator Matt Walsh's daily cancellation segment. They share their opinions and insights on what Walsh got right and where he may have gone wrong. Today's five-star rating is brought to you by Falls Rattlesnake Home Defense System. Are you tired of your Shashat machine gun constantly jamming on you when an invader storms the homestead? Are you sick of your highly trained murder dog being hoodwinked by a smatter of peanut butter? Then you need the Falls Rattlesnake Home Defense System. The Falls Berserk Rattlesnakes have been scientifically proven in six and a half triple blind placebo trials to ward off home invaders at least 11% of the time. Falls Rattlesnakes are so ruthless, even the homeowners aren't safe. So hit that five-star rating today and start taking your home defense seriously at rattlesnakesafeguard.com. Falls Rattlesnakes are completely ineffective against small mice. And now, on with the show. All right, and we are live. Live for nobody except for the two of us. (laughs) How was your Christmas, dude? Man, that was great. Yeah? Did yeah. you get anything cool? I did. Yeah? Um, yeah. Got a got a safe. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> need for uh, uh, for yeah. anything in particular? Just jewels? Yeah. I got a, I got a jewel <laughs> s- uh, safe. A, a no. specific yeah. jewel safe? Yeah. <laughs> I got a safe to store my jewel records. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dude, remember remember uh, when we were younger and our buddy Alan had a had a rattlesnake <laughs> yeah that snake sucks <laughs> <laughs> and he kept it to to guard his jewels yeah <laughs> and remember he, he put it he wouldn't do anything well it was, a, it was a rattlesnake which you would think would be like ultra violent right like yeah. that's how i kind of picture rattlesnakes and then i remember he put a mouse in there and the mouse like kicked its ass the mouse smoked that <laughs> snake <dude. laughs> and then and like then tap dancing on his nose yeah and he's uh, all and he and he, i love how he like defends it too yeah, he got all my snakes cool your snake sucks alan shut up dude your snake sucks dude alan even to this day dude yeah. if you listen to this your snake sucks yeah. okay so you got a jewel safe yeah yeah then just i don't know all kinds of other other yeah. stuff dude i'm never i've it's been a weird it was a weird it, like as you grow older one thing i've noticed is i get excited about things that i just wasn't really as excited as when I was a kid, specifically like underwear and socks, right? Like absolutely. Cause, cause I wear a very oh, I can talk specific all day type of underwear, Same. right? And socks. You wear Tommy John's? No. Oh dude. We're missing you, out. Oh bro. I'm just telling you, if you just get a pair of Apollo Tommy John's now, no, they're expensive. Okay. 
but it doesn't matter. You'll never turn back. I promise you. All right. They're not a sponsor or anything, obviously. Yeah, brought to you by but, Tommy Jones. <laughs> but if you buy them, dude, I'm telling you, I almost want to give you a pair. Dude, I'm looking to just give me some of your old ones, dude. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <Yeah. laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, socks, because like uh, socks, I, I wear those darn tough socks, which I love because those have a... You ever gotten a pair of those? Mm-mm. Oh, bro, why are you missing out on life? Darn tough. They, they're they're uh, merino wool, of course, but then also they're guaranteed for life. No ifs, ands, or buts. If they rip at all, they get any holes in them. So think about this. No matter what. For life. How does it? Doesn't matter. You can take them into any store that sells them and get a pair right how off How is the that shelf. a viable business model? That's it just crazy. is. But, but what the, else do they sell? They got to sell other stuff. Huh? That's it. Socks. Wow. Yeah. What? Darn tough socks. They're out of Vermont. Dude, I, I'm, I can get behind the wool thing. I've been I've been looking into that. Well, I didn't realize how. I, I used to think wool was like scratchy and oh, no. like, felt like crap. I didn't know. I, yeah. I didn't oh, yeah. know. Yeah. I Dude, didn't know. I, and the other thing that I noticed too is like on those socks, I was thinking to myself, I remember back in the day, there'd be like all these drives for like socks for homeless people, you know? Um, and then like Bombus, that was a company that, that if you bought a pair of their socks, they gave a pair to the homeless people or they, or they stole a pair I of they, socks. I think that's what it was. They yeah. took, they took socks from the homeless. God, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but dude, darn <laughs> tough. So. If you just, if you bought, <clears throat> if you bought five pairs of darn tough socks, that's all a homeless person would ever need for the rest of their life. Why that's not just wild. do that? Right. Yeah, I know. And ideal too, because there's wool, like, I mean, homeless people dealing with the elements, right. you know, better than cotton. Now, now you pay for it. Don't get me wrong. Like, I mean, if you, if you buy, if you get socks, what's the damage? So like one pair. So if you got like some ankle no-show socks, it's twelve ninety nine. which, which th- that's one pair. It's lifetime though. That's lifetime easy. though. That's easy. Right. Um, and then if you're getting like business work stuff, cause they have work stuff that are all colorful and everything. Those are like 25. The, the, the thing that makes a good sock for me is that it like doesn't slide around on my foot all day and that it fits like oh, snug. Perfect. But yeah. But e- even if it loosens, you can take it in and get new, new pair. I'm not kidding either. I've done it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Users comment, tell them about darn tough socks. Yeah. But dude, yeah, I, I also noticed, um, so I got that. And then I, I also noticed <laughs> toys that used to be something that then went away and magically came back in like the zeitgeist of, of today. So, <laughs> do, you, do you, did you ever, when we were teenagers, do you remember a toy called a Furby? Yeah. Okay. And I, our Furby's back. They are because I got my daughter one because she really wanted. One. Okay, that's okay. They were not for you. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, I'm just got a yeah, the, right, I got a Furby, guys. No, I got one when I was a teenager, yeah. right? And I, I guess Lame. I misunderstood the. I know I yeah. miss, but what I did with it was kind of cool, although it didn't work. Because I, I, I guess, do you remember they kind of like learned stuff? That's right. Right. So, so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to really corrupt this little shit. <laughs> so yeah. I, re- I remember distinctly, I bought that. I had the fur. I didn't buy it. I got it for Christmas and I put it on a stool in my room and I let it watch apocalypse now on repeat for like all day while I was at school. <laughs> this is an interesting experiment, bro. What in the world? Nothing happened. Oh. <laughs> but I was thinking, I was like, okay, what I'll, were you hoping? Uh, would I was going to turn into yeah. a little devil. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly technology yeah, wasn't yeah, there. Caught up yet. Yeah. Cause yeah. they were, I, I guess it could learn certain things, but like at the time, <laughs> <Lips> now. <laughs> 
was like, that was the most gnarly movie that yeah, I could think yeah. of at the time. I was like, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Next, I'll fall, f- show a full metal jacket. Yeah. Then, <laughs> it's just the dumbest yeah, line of yeah, thinking ever. Yeah. And I love, I love a cute little toy that like learns certain things. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to turn it into the spawn of Satan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. 14 year old boys for you. Yeah. So yeah. But overall good Christmas though. Yeah. Get your kids anything cool. Um, yeah, they got a dude. I, I, um, they got, uh, you're, this is even more nerd disclosures here, but I, I assume you're not into anime very much, right? No. Okay. Some of our listeners probably are. All There's right. some pretty, I mean, you, you know, you kind of have kids that they'll like these things and then you kind of like you watch it and you're like, Wow, this is pretty badass. Yeah. Naruto's not so bad. Uh, no, I don't watch Naruto. I'm not talking crap on it, but um, uh, two of them, two of them that that really have um, uh, spoken to you, taken over yeah. this last year was uh, Attack on Titan, which is awesome, and then one called Demon Slayer, also equally awesome. Anybody who knows what I'm talking about will know how awesome it is. All right, I'm telling you, if you watched it, which I know you won't. I mean, you could, and you'd love it. I probably won't. There, you probably won't. Yeah. But yeah, there's some sweet characters in there. Like everybody knows. So that. was it like a gift that you really got for you, but gave it to your kids? No, 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 no. I just got a lot of stuff as far as those cartoons oh, go. Not like the Homer Simpson bowling ball thing that he got Marge a bowling ball with his name on it. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not going to play with any of their yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, no, they, they, and, and uh, I will say though, man, compared to like everything else, but compared to when we were kids, man, cartoons are so much cooler now. Like compared, are they to, really? Oh my hell, better so than much Ninja better. Turtles. Now Ninja Turtles was good, and but Batman, I, Batman was very was awesome, great cartoon, the, the, the original yeah. one that was like all dark and yep. everything, really good. Although if you go back and watch them, the animation kind of doesn't hold up very well. Probably, and I don't know, the themes are just kind of the, really like the quality of the animation. But if you watch, I know, but the stories are better too altogether. Oh. Anybody who's listening will know what I'm talking about. Comment, comment below, comment below, because I know you know what I'm talking about. Usually nostalgia ends up meaning that the older is the better. But if you're saying the new stuff's better, that's that's a statement right there. For sure. Wow. For sure. Okay. So, yeah. Speaking of better, I don't know if this is speaking of better. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were supposed to record this a couple weeks ago. Um, but uh, what happened to you? Yeah, yeah, my, laryngitis. Can you, can you hear it? It's still my voice still sucks. But yeah, it was your it voice was, has always been like this, though. It's even worse right now. Well, yeah, yeah. this. This is about as good as I've sounded in like two weeks. Oh, okay. I wasn't even sick. I felt fine the entire time. Oh, dude, but my voice so just like gave up. Yeah. I remember we did that. We had a huge presentation coming up and, um, and I had that, I wasn't sick at all. My voice was just gone. Just done. And I remember gargling like all kinds of hydrogen peroxide and honey yeah. and just yeah. gunk. And I could, and then it would help for two minutes. Right. Then, yep. Yeah. It's nothing. like a very temporary well, good, yeah. because you, I mean, as far as voices go, you definitely carry this thing because I don't think people <laughs> like my voice You're at all. You're about your vase, voice, bro. No, I, I'm not self-conscious. I know. Oh. It's, it's shit. It's, it sounds awful. You're just acknowledging yeah, it. I'm yeah, not, I'm not, not accountable. Uh, yeah. Right, that's fair. Speaking of which, yeah, we were, I think today we were going to try to focus on, um, one of my students actually brought this to my attention and it was, um, uh, so it, a lot of when I'm teaching, I, I kind of emphasize like the value of making sure that you're doing good therapy. And, um, I, I I think for students, one of the things the best thing, lesson that I can give them is that, you know, our industry and our profession is only ever going to be as legitimate as we want it to be. In other words, like 
you know, take, take stock in what we're doing and try to scientifically advance it based on, you know, what we know to be effective. Um, and, and only until then are we going to start seeing an increase in not just dollars on our paycheck, which would be nice, but also just recognition, you know, in like, I guess the healthcare community in general, because mental health workers are, whether you're a therapist or, or psychiatrist or probably not a psychiatrist. Cause they're a medical doctor. Sorry. Sorry, MDs. Um, but psychologists too. I just don't, I think they kind of in the hierarchy they're they're considered what lesser than <laughs> you could say. Yeah. I mean, are, are you talking about just like the need to do more research or just hold ourselves to a higher standard? To, what, what do you mean? Um, well, well n- n- research will always continue. I think, um, uh, we have, we have, uh, if you remember a few episodes ago, a few ago, um, we talked about, uh, that paper. Well, it wasn't a paper. It, there was a pretty good, um, uh, I don't even know what it is. Text something, uh, published by the Institute of Medicine. And it was just talking about, we have tons of research showing how effective therapy can be. Right. But that's always contingent on that being linked with an evidence-based practice, right? And and the real chasm that exists is the willingness of therapists to use evidence-based practices uh, versus those who won't. So there's a quality chasm. It's not it's not it's not a a numbers thing really. I mean, there, we you know um, I, I think we. Uh, sure, we have a shortage of therapists, no doubt, you know, with all the mental health crises about, but I'm talking about, we have more than enough not doing evidence-based practices. And so to bridge that gap, we can improve our field exponentially if we just take the existing amount of social workers and do more evidence-based practice. And and in, in response to that, we will also improve the quality of the, and we'll have better outcomes for our clients too. So when I, I preach that my what preach. I teach that in my classes and I try to say, Hey, just take your profession seriously. You know, just, just know that, that whatever you do is going to be a reflection on the next person and so on and so on. Right. So, I mean, as long as I can remember evidence based practice has been pushed. I remember learning that from my professors and then, you know, in the field, we <coughs> are continually encouraged to use evidence based practice and, uh, you know, I, I, as well as you, am aware of some of the pushback we get, but I, I'm kind of curious as you're teaching up and comers, these students that are coming through, like what's their, what's the general sense you get about their understanding of the, the, the need for evidence-based practice for our field to be, you know, taken serious. Um, I, I think after I've, I've, um, so, so the good news is every one of them start in a position of, I want to help people get better, right? That's an excellent place to start. So I just say, okay, here's, and I, and I give them practical examples of, of how this hasn't gone well in the past. And so sometimes that's therapists, you know, I mean, we've, we've all come across therapists like this. They'll call themselves like eclectic therapists, yep. which holistic you know, <clears throat> those are great words. I don't know exactly what they mean, and I'm not sure those people could define it either, but um, they're not grounded in, in a specific type of practice. I mean, even, even if you said, I do hardcore to fidelity psychoanalysis, okay? I mean, it's a pretty archaic type of treatment, but at least you're doing it to fidelity. At least you something. picked a lane. Right, right, exactly. So whether it's 
psychoanalysis. Hope <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that works out very well. Or um, or cognitive behavioral or solution focus or, or whatever, whatever, yeah. you know, you're doing awesome provided that you're doing that. Um, because otherwise that's where I feel like, you know, we're, we're not meeting our mark. And I think everybody gets on board with that really quickly, but something happens, something happens. These are usually bachelor's level students that I'm talking to. So something happens once they get into like, um, graduate school, um, you know, prior to completing their masters and into the field, because that's where, at least in my opinion, I received the most pushback on using an evidence-based practice. Like, is it, well, is it pushback <clears throat> like directly or is it people? Cause I, I've seen both. So I guess I'm asking you a question that I feel like I have an opinion on already. So there's some people actively push back and then other people. And I think, I think the majority of people that, I think are off base with this and are filled with those that say they're using evidence-based practice. They say they practice cognitive behavioral therapy, but they, they don't really. Um, maybe a little bit of both, I guess you could You've say. seen that too. Yeah. I mean, it, if I'd say somebody who says they're doing cognitive behavioral therapy, um, like I, I don't think that they're being dishonest about that. I think that they think they're doing cognitive right. behavioral yes. therapy, right? Um, but like an example of this, right. I was, I was talking to, um, uh, it wasn't really a debate. It was a kind of a team meeting, but I was talking to a psychologist who was reviewing, um, another client's work. It wasn't my client. It was a client of a person that I supervise. Right. And they were just saying, you know, your guys' program is not based on a cognitive behavioral program. And I'm like, the, the program, the, the interventions we use are called cognitive behavioral interventions, but by all means, tell me, tell yeah. me what we're doing. Okay. Yeah. And then he went on to name, and, and this was the fascinating part. I thought he went on to name, um, a workbook of an author, um, that th- this is a, uh, a treatment or an author that has authored a workbook designed for individuals who've committed a sex offense. Right. So, and you and I have attended conferences and trainings with that author saying, hey, don't use my workbook anymore. It, it was published this long ago. The concepts in it are no longer applicable to this. And and by the way, last time I checked, I mean, I, I'm not I'm no expert. I hate that word expert, by the way. <laughs> so silly. Um, you give somebody a workbook and say, hey, go complete this assignment and I'll see you in a week, you know. And the reading is pretty intense. And then there's a bunch of questions at the end, which really just measure comprehension of the material. I don't know how that is cognitive behavioral therapy at all, like in the slightest. You know what I mean? So it's kind of narrative based. Right. Being like bibliotherapy, I guess you could say. And um, and it's I suppose it could be a vehicle for moving forward a conversation or facilitating a therapeutic dialogue. But there's no action oriented, you know aspect to it of, Hey, I'm going to take this skill into the real world and do anything about it. So, but then also, yeah, the pushback of people just saying, you know, I just don't think this is going to work for the client. I just, I mean, and just using really loose, um, I don't want to be limited. Yeah. I want to, I want to be present with the client, which I mean, so they use very, 
I don't know, ambiguous, smoky, nebulous language that doesn't really mean anything. Right. And in, as a justification for departure away from an evidence-based practice. So I, I think we've, we've done enough to say, I mean, my opinion is I think that that does damage to our industry. I think it lessens our legitimacy and anybody outside looking in who's viewing that, who has any level of, of, um, knowledge about what we do or what we should be doing is going to point at that as evidence that we don't know what we're doing and just support that. Yeah. These, this is, this is giving people a master's degree who, who disregard literature, who disregard evidence, who just, you know, do whatever they want, despite everything we know to be effective for clients. Doesn't exactly capture the faith of the people that we're trying to help. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So, so one of my students pointed out, um, that, uh, a political commentator, Matt Walsh, um, had, had, this was back in like several months ago that he published this, but he has a segment on his show. Uh, it's the daily cancellation and he, and he canceled therapy. <laughs> <laughs> like it's over. Yeah. yeah. So apparently as, as Matt Walsh will tell us it's, it's, it's over, but I had some clips that I thought we could look at and dissect and comment Sweet. on. And then, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll do us some justice yeah. and you'll, you'll kind of see what I'm talking about as we go here. Let's see what we got. Right. All right. Here is old Matt Walsh. If you are in therapy, you're probably wasting your time. Worse, you're probably doing yourself more harm than good. That's the case that I want to make today in this segment. But first, let's establish some necessary background uh, to begin with. That starts with this. Recently, The Hill published a report telling us what we already know, which is that Americans love going to therapy. According to the outlet, quote, the number of Americans seeking mental health treatment is almost twice as high as it was two decades ago, reflecting a historic recent decline in mental health, but also an increase in virtual care and positive trends of destigmatization. In 2004, just 13% of adults said that they had visited a therapist, psychiatrist, or other mental health professional within the past year, according to Gallup polling. In 2022, that number was up to 23%. Now, to put this in perspective in terms of raw numbers, if these percentages are accurate, then somewhere around 60 million adults in this country are in therapy. Reading on, quote, a majority of psychologists reported seeing more patients seek help for disorders related to anxiety, depression, or stress in 2020, and again in 2021 and 2022, according to an annual survey from the American Psychological Association. Many health experts link to uh, increased demand to plummeting mental health during the pandemic, which led to spikes in the numbers of Americans reporting depression and anxiety. Some health experts think the numbers tell another story, however, one about the success of teletherapy. Now, it's important to note that success... All right. So... I guess the one thing, um, uh, man, that's going to be, that's going to be fun to edit and post. Jeez. <laughs> I don't have an easy solution for that. Um, yeah. we're still rolling. Uh, I, I, I mean, I guess the, I guess the, uh, the, um, Oh, the good thing is there's more people in therapy than ever before. Right. Yeah. I think that's kind of <laughs> what it was saying with the destigmatization. Is that, is that good? Or does that mean there's like people are way less mentally healthy and therefore like, yeah. what, like chicken or egg? I mean, well, right, right, right. So, I mean, uh, the, so it kind of goes on here, but the, um, the, you know, there's more, there's more people in therapy than ever before, I think is, is kind of what the point of behind that. And yeah. again, I don't know, 
necessarily if that's a good or a bad thing right. just yet. I mean, obviously we'll have to we'll have to see. Let's so see what LT goes on here. And uh yeah, this will be fun trying to figure out <laughs> It's super cool because our recording software that we got, like every time that I switch between that and uh, and watching the screen, it shuts off our audio. So I have to hit re-record on this. So I think I might have a solution for that. Yeah, you're listening right now. <laughs> okay. And we're back on. Yes, <laughs> in this sentence doesn't mean that this type of therapy has proven effective at helping people uh, solve their problems. It just means that teletherapy has become more and more common as therapy customers find it easy and convenient to sit in the comfort of their own homes and attend therapy over FaceTime. This is part of what has increased the, uh, the demand. You know, it's what drive is driving the increased demand. The article also puts a lot of the blame on COVID. But these are all trends that far predate COVID and FaceTime. In fact, I found an article from the American Psychological Association noting the significant increase in Americans seeking mental health services. And that article was published in 2004. So in 2004, they were already noticing this uh, big increase in people going to therapy. And now we know compared to 2004, it's doubled since then. The trends become even more evident when you break it down generationally. The Hill notes that as of 2019, which means that all these numbers are higher now, 37% of Gen Z had received therapy 35% of millennials and 26% of Gen Xers. Well, it's clear that something like COVID is a relatively minor factor here. Therapy is becoming more and more popular generation after generation. And these trends have become, have been observable for decades. Which is interesting when you consider, again. Jeez. I gave myself three seconds in between each one of those. And each time I screwed it up. So, I mean, but... I guess I'm, I guess so as every generation passes, essentially, you're seeing what roughly a 7% increase in the amount of people that are attending therapy. I think 25% of, of, um, gen, well, anyway, some, gen some of X those to millennial. To yeah, yeah, gen yeah, Z. yeah. The gen X were millennials. No, uh, boomer, <laughs> boomer, and Gen X. There you go. Okay, there, there you go. Yeah. So, um, but he's, he used a funny word there. Popular, like therapy is becoming more popular as time goes on. I don't know if popular is a good word for it. Yeah, it's kind of, I think, being dismissive and uh, maybe making the case that it's something trendy, but not something that actually has any level of, I guess, academic integrity or you know, professional well, rigor. Well, I don't know. Do you think? Do you think that that uh, mental health quality has gone down with each passing generation? Like in other words, are are people more mentally ill with with the you know? I don't know because that isn't that the thing though. Is that like depression and anxiety rates have spiked? But how are we measuring that? We're measuring that probably by I don't know. Whatever, whatever metric, it could just mean that more people that suffer from those conditions are, are getting help as opposed to just keeping their yap shut. Well, right. And, and I think the article that he's referring to is is clearly stating that, um, you know, you, you can attribute a, a, an acute spike to, you know, within a, a what, a two, three year period to covid, which we still are gathering data on right now. But 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 the number of people that are attending therapy has um has increased with each one of each those generation. Yeah. Well, well, so there's, 
Well, there might be another, there might be another reason for that too, though. I think even in the original article, um, it mentioned destigmatization. Am I saying that right? (laughs) So in other words, like the stigma of going to therapy is no longer applicable in, in like, as it used to be, in other words, you know what I mean? Yeah. See what I'm saying? Yeah. It, the, I mean, it's, it's going to be one of those things that it's not like, uh, there's like multi-factorial explanation as to, as to what's going on, you know, like destigmatization through each passing generation could be one slice of the pie. Right. Um, again, increased rates of legitimate mental illness could be another slice of the pie. Uh, things like environmental, um, things like, uh, COVID Mm -hmm. could be another slice, but he's definitely pigeonholing it into like, something else like it's just he's calling it a more trend. and more yeah. <laughs> i love popular like a, a fad popular is a weird word yeah. to use yeah. for attending he, therapy he's clearly talking shit <laughs> let's see where he goes with it <laughs> yeah me too i like i like the idea of it uh let's see here okay so i guess we'll watch uh this next but i had them all queued up too like really good so but okay The very first sentence of this article, which says the number of Americans seeking mental health treatment is almost twice as high as it was two decades ago, reflecting a historic recent decline in mental health. So it's not just uh, the Hill noticing this either. I mean, the rest of the media, along with our public health authorities, also insist that mental health is declining at a historic rate. Well, that's a funny thing, isn't it? Correlation doesn't always mean causation, but still... The correlation here is hard to ignore. Over the decades, we're told mental health is getting worse and worse, even though more and more people are going to therapy. Each year, more people go to therapy, and yet the problem only gets worse. There is a bit of a chicken and egg conundrum here, of course. Maybe more people are going to therapy because mental health is allegedly so bad, you could always argue. But even then, if therapy works, if all of the collective billions that Americans have spent on therapy was actually money well spent, then shouldn't we see those benefits manifest themselves in the culture at some point? Instead, we just see more and more people going to therapy while all the problems therapy is supposed to fix only continue to get worse and worse year after year after year after year. Just to use a quick football analogy, uh, shortly after the end of the 2022 season, the Baltimore Ravens fired their strength and conditioning coach by the name of Steve Saunders. He had uh, been in that job for several years, and each year under his tenure, it seemed as though players were getting injured at an unusually high rate, and the problem only got worse over time. A rash of injuries plagued the the Ravens every year. Now, you might argue that if players are getting injured a lot, that's all the more reason to not fire your strength and conditioning coach. He's got a lot of work to do. And it's all the more reason why we need him. Just let him do his work. But of course, the trend indicates that whatever Steve Saunders was doing to help prevent injuries wasn't working. If you have a good strength and conditioning coach, you should find that player health and fitness is trending up. If it trends down year after year, it probably means that you need to seriously revamp your strength and conditioning department and fire the people in charge of it. So a similar point can be made about the people tasked with ensuring that mental, uh, the mental strength and conditioning of Americans. We have seen nothing but decline in that area, decade upon decade, which probably means that a whole lot of people in the mental health industry should be fired. On a a macro 
societal level, there simply is no reason to believe that most of these people are doing us any good at all. On the micro level, you can see this as well. It's not a coincidence that, coincidence that many of the worst and most dysfunctional people you'll ever meet have been in therapy for years. Now, there's no sign that it's doing them any good, that it's prompting any improvements, but they keep at it. You know, it reminds you of a, of a morbidly obese person who's been seeing a dietitian for 15 years. Something just isn't working here. Now, you see the morbidly obese person and you find out they're seeing a dietitian, you say, well, that's good. That's the kind of person who needs a dietitian. But then you hear, oh, I've been going to this guy for 15 years. Okay, unless you started at 7,000 pounds and now you're down to 300, unless that's the case, then clearly there's a problem with the dietitian. Something's not working here. Dude, 7,000. That'd be a, it's a, that'd be a big fella. fella. Yeah. yeah. When I was a, a little kid, there was this guy named Walter Hudson mm-hmm. that died, and he he uh, he was a thousand pounder. Oh yeah, and yeah, and I remember like I remember learning about him because it fascinated me, and they buried him in like a piano box or something. Like oh yeah, yeah, and uh, like so seven thousand. I love a piano box. Like they just couldn't build a box. It seems kind of degrading. <laughs> I mean I, I, yeah. I mean, I get the piano boxes are big because they have yeah. a piano in so them. They made a point. Of, However, yeah. I can put four slabs of wood together, okay, yeah. to make a box. Like, you don't need you to, to call it a piano box. It was box. a piano box. <laughs> no, uh, I, I got thoughts on this. Yeah. So, first off, we have to acknowledge that he could be right. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it, it's within the realm of possibility that... We're trying really, really hard and we just aren't good at it. And our attempts at helping people just aren't doing what we want them to do. But like the, another potential, potential problem with his analogy. So he, he, he came out with three different uh, examples. Well, two mm-hmm. different examples plus the, so there's the increase in people going to therapy, increased mental illness. We're making it worse. Then he compared it to like strength and conditioning coach. And he's you know, yeah. saying that like we have a strength and conditioning coach and you know, if uh year in and year out, you keep having athletes that are getting injured, time to fire your strength and conditioning coach. Yeah. And, and, and then the, um, what was the final example? The dietitian dietitian. Thank uh-huh. you. And he's, he's measuring, uh, success of a dietitian by uh, weight loss. And so right. like if we're looking at the efficacy of a nutritionist being weight lost, that's a metric that we can look at. We can, and we can say, okay, did the person did or did not lose weight? The, the dietitian was or was not effective. We can look at the strength and conditioning coach. And if the metric is injury prevention on and off the field, um, again, that's something pretty tangible. The difference is with the mental health, it, it, this is just kind of how I'm thinking of it is if we're looking at the metric being that anxiety disorders aren't showing up as often as a diagnostic tool, then yeah, Walsh has a point. But like the thing is, is that like you and I both have had clients in therapy uh-huh. that, you know, they, they, that, you know, the, the diagnosis that we have them down for generalized anxiety disorder. So a year from now, like if they're still in treatment, it's very, it's really quite possible that although we're still treating them for, for anxiety, they've made substantial improvements during therapy that don't show up in the absence or presence of anxiety disorder being listed on their, their diagnostic criteria. Like they're, mm-hmm. we, 
could be argued that we're, we're helping improve their level of functioning. And that that's not like the fact that now they can apply for a job without being crippled with anxiety about performance in a job interview, land that job. Now they've got a job, they're better functioning. That's not showing up in, you know, that it still might show up that they have this anxiety disorder. You know, maybe we've, imp- we've improved their relationships and the way that they can interact. And now this guy can, has the courage to ask somebody out on a date and has a meaningful relationship. Again, the diagnosis for anxiety still remains the same, but his level of functioning is, is improving. And that gets lost into, in the statistics. So, so maybe the metric isn't being measured in a way that would be as cut and dry as injury prevention for the strength conditioning coach or yeah. uh, weight loss for a nutritionist. So, so in other words, if I'm following you, the, the thing that's being measured, the metric um, is in his analogy is uh number of injuries or number of pounds. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And with the idea that, that if somebody's there to, um, either prevent those or reduce those, that those would, those would go down over time. Yes. Whereas, um, the metric that he's using for people attending therapy is simply that the number of people in therapy, right. Um, which, which I'd be kind of interested what, what then like happens after that, because you're saying that the metric ought to be a measure of dysfunction versus functionality, yes. right? Yes. Functional impairment versus, versus am I, am I functioning, um, am I a functioning member of society, which he didn't mention as far as I was, as far as I heard as to the number of people attending that. But then, I mean that, and that gets, I don't know, I, I guess it's symptoms that you'd be looking at, right. That then meet criteria for that disorder and that led mm-hmm. lead to functional impairment. Right. And so you're saying, well, you, you could easily make the argument that the the fact that we have more people in therapy is indicative that we have less dysfunctional people in, in the community. So that's not a, that's not an accurate metric of, of what we're actually looking at. It's the, a potential. You got it right. Yeah. Okay. It's a potential critique to that metaphor. Got it. Analogy, okay. whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference. I just don't know what it is. I uh, think analogy compares to, I, no, I'm yeah, not going to try. Analogies a comparison. Yeah. Metaphors. Okay. Let's are, see what else he has to say here before we <laughs> yeah. screw that up. On the, uh, on the members block, we watched this video of a twice divorced woman explaining why none of the bad things in her life are her fault. Let's watch that again. Things I stopped with after my divorce. People who judge me based off of my choices. Oh, you would never get a divorce no matter what? Cool. Well, I've had two. Be well. Also stopped with the narrative that something was wrong with me. Nothing's wrong with me. Things happened to me that made me the person that I was and have the struggles that I had. You can fix that. Anything that you don't like, anything that is no longer serving you, change it. Change it. Go to therapy. Do the journaling. Practice meditation. Do the things that you need to do to be the person you want to be. Go to therapy, she says. If we can assume that she's taken her own advice, we see again how therapy has not helped this truly awful. By the way, like, I love just grabbing red herrings out there. Uh, Yeah, a a, 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 a video that some content creator made might not be reflective of her actual functioning. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's funny. (laughs) If anything, it seems to have reinforced all of her worst attitudes and beliefs. By the way, this woman, Leah Marie is her name. She is a life coach who specializes Uh in helping coach women through their own divorces. The about me on her website says this. My second divorce was the ugliest wake up call ever. 
That's when I knew I needed to do things differently if I was going to find the happiness I really wanted. So I did all the things, therapy, journaling, meditation, reading books, listening to podcasts. I wanted to learn as much as I could about rebuilding my self-esteem, loving myself, taking better care of myself, and knowing my worth. She went to therapy, apparently, and discovered that nothing is her fault, that everything is everyone else's fault, that she's been divorced twice, and yet it was something that happened to her each time, not something that she did or is at fault for. (laughs) And now she's on a journey of trying to live the most selfish life she possibly can while helping other women do the same. By its fruits shall we know uh, it, and the fruits, as we have seen with therapy, are very rotten indeed. Okay. To me, I I don't know. Like, you can't just pull, again... (laughs) Something from one content creator off the internet who clearly is, is, I mean, I'm sure she's a lovely lady in real life. Um, that clip may not have showed her the most flattering side right. of her personality. And, and, and yes, I, I think if, if that was what her therapy um, episode was intended to do, um, yeah, he's not wrong, you know, pointing all those things out as far as like, you know, uh, I'm not accountable for this and nothing had to do with me. And, and I mean, it is very opposite of what we try to coach clients on and, and intervene with them on. Like we don't, I mean, I don't, I, I don't ever say, you know, like, um, it's all your fault or anything. That's, that's not really what I try to tell clients. I do try to empower them to like, despite whose fault faults, kind of a weird thing, you know, like <clears throat> placing blame because then blame puts the responsibility of change onto whoever's to blame. Right. Which, which disempowers your client. Yes. It takes them out of the driver's seat. And so I, you know, like, uh, I mean, sometimes people think this is controversial, but like, um, like clients we work with, with, you know, uh, clients that have committed a sex offense. How many times have you heard a guy tell you, uh, okay, you know, I, and I had a client, I thought it was as legitimate as it came. He passed a polygraph and everything. And I believed him. I don't have any reason not to believe him. And his story to me was, um, his story to me was, is he started dating a girl and she said she was a certain age. And he found out later that she wasn't right. And um, usually, you know, I I try to tell them, hey, the worst way to ever try to find out a girl's age is asking for her ID. I I don't know. I'm, you know, maybe maybe call me old fashioned. Uh, When I take a young lady out on a date, the last I don't first say, hey, can I see your ID? Like, that's a weird that's a weird ask. You know what I mean? Um, And I say, you know, more so spending time with this individual and just just kind of reading what's happening. I mean, sometimes, yes, eyeballing it. He was young. He was in his early 20s. And so um, here's the weird thing, though, is in the police report that I read. um, And this was later admitted that that uh, so he met her at college. Right. And she was she was still in high school, but she was in an advanced standing in college, met her there, which seems like if you're in college and you meet a gal in college and she looks the part. okay, what more do I have to go off of there? Right. Mm -hmm. And he moved in with her family. okay, and and her mom also told him that she was older than she was. He she said she was 19. Right. Okay. The girl's only 16. So, so far this, this guy has a lot of reasons probably built up in his head as to why he's not at fault. Well, well, right. Well, right. And the mom 
actually admitted that to the police that she, that she did that oh, right and then um what what ended up happening was he introduced her to meth probably shouldn't have i guess you know um and, and so he lived with her and they knew his age parents knew his age and um they they lied to him about that girl's age okay now this is also a one off so i'm not saying this is this is a perfect example but he later on found out and dad found out that they were smoking meth, got pissed off, reported him for, he, he, like I said, he was like 23 and she was 16. And, um, and then he got charged with whatever he got charged with. Right now to me, I'm saying, look, I don't know if you are solely to blame for this. If you're solely at fault for this, looking at blaming them doesn't do you any good. I was like, I get it. I, I mean, would you, were you hoodwinked? Was there reasons? Were there good reasons in a, in a lot of respects to think this person was of that age? Yeah, I get it. That's good context for you to have, but it, it doesn't ab- absolve you of your responsibility in that you still chose to engage in those behaviors. And unfortunately those behaviors have consequences. You can't place the blame because all that does is shift responsibility. And if you can't be responsible for what's happening in your life, then you're screwed. That makes you completely out of control. So even in circumstances where you have a really legitimate gripe about your situation, I still try to empower the client to be responsible for what's happening in their lives. And and to, to Matt's credit in this clip, yeah, that was very much everything else is to blame. Not my, not my problem. And every, every, everybody else is to blame for my problems. So, but that's not a great example of what we yeah, try to do as yeah, therapists. It, if we're looking at the clip alone, Walsh has a point because the way she came <laughs> off was blaming other people for her position. And, and just, to, I just wanted to follow up on your example. Cause <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was solid. Like yeah. if I had a client like the guy you're describing, my approach might be to, acknowledge like, well, yeah, that's a lot of things going against you. I can see how you ended up in that position. Let's figure out what you can do next time to mitigate risk. Like what's something that you could like in hindsight, what's something that you could have done to vet her age in the future? What's what's a practice that you can put into place that would help bring this, this information to light so that you're not stuck in this position again, what can you do different despite that? A lot was a lot of this is understandable, but still, what can you do different? Well, right. And that puts the onus of responsibility on them. So, because like you said, just to parrot back what you're saying, if if your client was discharged, successfully discharged from therapy, still operating under the assumption that I'm I'm a I'm a complete victim in all of this then he's going to feel validated and he's going to feel good about himself, but he's going to have not picked up any skills to keep himself out of situations in the future, which would then have made therapy ineffective because he would just now feel good about himself without having picked up any skills to keep from that happening again. Well, right. And it's definitely not intended to make him feel bad. Like right. that's not what I'm trying to no, do. You're trying to make him more effective navigating complex dating social dynamics. Right. And what I don't want him to do in the future is just not be in a relationship ever. Right. I, I want him to get into future mutually beneficial relationships. But like you said, and, and I think that's, that's an exception to situations that we've dealt with before, obviously. Right. Um, and, and again, like, you know, the whole idea of victim blaming that it's preposterous is silly to even not, not because it's, 
you, you can point to the I'm saying it absolves you of responsibility and then you're out of control of the situation. So mm-hmm. client always needs to be in the driver's seat of what's happening in their own lives and adjusting their behavior accordingly. You know, like, I mean, whether this is a one night stand, which I assume most one night stands end just fine. Right. However, a, a handful of them end in craziness. Yeah. Where, right. That, that now you have to be accountable to and adjust to. Now, that just means, OK, well. This happened to me. I'm now responsible for this. How am I going to adjust my behavior moving into the future so I no longer have dysfunction in my life, which is what we try to do as therapists. So, yeah, I does have a point, but that's that's definitely not what we're trying to do is right. just tell them, nope, not your fault. Like you're a perfect person, whoever you are. That That's never what we try to do in therapy. Just to his point. <laughs> there probably are therapists that do that, do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for so sure. I'll give him that. <laughs> They do, yeah, blindly. Yeah. Okay, I got now, it. Now, there's a lot that goes into this, many culprits that could be named, uh, a lot driving the problem. But I would like to suggest that part of the issue is that in many cases, not all but many, therapy turns out to be not only a waste of time, but something that will ultimately do more harm than good. Oh, no. Now, why might that be the case? Well, for one thing, as is the case with whoever has been counseling Leah Marie, the divorce coach, you know, we just watched. Poor therapist. A great many therapists and psychologists and counselors and others in the psych industry have a deeply and fundamentally disordered view of humanity and what constitutes healthy behavior and good habits of thought and action. If therapy has any chance of helping you at all, it depends largely on the assumption that the therapist will have correct and useful insights mm. into life and the human condition. But there is no license, there's no degree, there's no resume, there's no credential that ensures that someone is wise and insightful, much less that they have a correct understanding of the human condition. And what we find in many cases is that that the people in this industry not only have no special insight into any of this, but in fact are more confused than half of the people who come to see them seeking guidance (laughs) fall into this category. Well, touche, Matt Walsh. (laughs) (laughs) That is is not untrue. Some of the most emotionally unhinged people I've ever met are therapists. (laughs) You got a point. (laughs) Although what I would say is um, I, I I don't know that it requires that we are wise and insightful. Like we, we, okay. Why is the guy on the mountaintop necessarily that people walk miles to go see and receive counsel from wise and insightful and understanding the human condition sounds as if I'm now going to give you advice. Exactly. And therapists don't give advice. So, or if you are a therapist, stop giving advice. That's not what you're supposed to do. I know that's what they do in the movies. That's not what you're supposed to do. Okay. Um, if I'm using good motivational interviewing I'm, and, and guided discovery or Socratic questioning, I'm actually helping the client find the answer for themselves. A lot of times we end up in the same spot, but a lot of times I'm surprised too with solutions that they come up with all on their own. If you're doing it right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and really the only thing that I try to do for them is okay. So here's, here's, here's the situation. Here's thoughts that you're having about, about this situation. Are those thoughts irrational or rational? Okay, great. What is the emotional response to those thoughts? And then what is the behavioral output from those thoughts and those emotions? And then what are the consequences of that behavior? Now, if the consequence, if all that leads to more positive outcomes, and when I say positive, I'm meaning like it's helpful for you reaching your goals, provided that your goals are not intended to hurt anybody. So this is contingent on you not abusing, not harming anybody. It's improving your life. It's improving the lives of those around you. Well, then it's none of my business. I don't care how you get there. Like, it doesn't really matter to me, provided that you're getting there in a way that's not causing harm. And morals 
are going to be different for everybody. So like, there's not a, a, a constant of, of wisdom and insight into how people are supposed to behave. Like as long as you're not committing crimes, hurting anybody and you're being fulfilled and you're not dysfunctional, everybody's going to have a different take on how to live life appropriately. You know, we, whether or not the training we receive is applied would probably be dependent on each individual uh, therapist, but we do receive a lot of, I guess a lot of our training has to do with being aware of our own biases, you know, being culturally sensitive and not putting our own bias onto our clients uh, to be aware of, you know, any, any transference or counter transference, you know, b- beliefs or attitudes or things that the client might remind of somebody else that we to keep us from downloading our own shit onto the client. Like we're, we're, we're trained pretty significantly to avoid a lot of those traps and pitfalls. And we're, we're especially trained on the whole thing that you're saying, like not giving advice. Our job yeah. is to maybe stand side by side with the client, maybe helping them see some of the obstacles in their way, but ultimately asking them thought provoking questions such that they can identify the obstacle and find novel ways around it. We're, we're uh, along for the ride a little bit. I do wonder though, if that is the majority of therapists, right? I don't know. Right. See, and that might be the problem that, that a lot of therapists, give advice, direct advice on how to behave and how to act, you know, and, and, um, it could be right. And then it's not, um, you you know, it's kind of like, uh, what reminds me of, I was in a, I was in a substance use group one time and I was co-facilitating with a therapist. Right. Um, and a girl in there, she was just talking about, um, so she was, you know, addicted to methamphetamine and she was talking about, how much weight she had gained and that meth was a a big way for her to lose weight. And, and weight has always been like a, uh, a trigger for her, you know, and, um, something that on her self image has really caused a problem for her. And the therapist just said, you know what? It means you're healthy. And I was like, okay, (laughs) maybe not. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but that's not necessarily what the client needed to hear right. in that moment. Okay. Um, her self image, whatever that is, if she wants to be, now look, here's the cool thing about that is, is methamphetamine an effective way of losing weight? Well, of course it is. Right. I, and I didn't say healthy. I said an effective way of losing weight. Right. Of course it is. Are there all now, if, if she has, this client has a body image in her head of how she would like to look. And that helps her build her confidence and self-esteem, which means she can function better in the real world. Okay. Well, who am I to disagree with that? And then who am I to tell her? Well, no, no, actually when you're 20 pounds heavier, that's you being healthy. So you shouldn't want to be back to where you were because that's bad because the opposite of healthy is unhealthy. Right? So the, the answer to that is, well, are, are there, effective and also healthy ways of getting to where you, where you appear and how you feel physically without using methamphetamine. You're asking the client that are there effective ways for you to get right. That's, that's my track with them. Like I validate uh, initially, I just validate the emotion. Like that's a complete 
telling a client, no, you're healthy. That's a complete dismissal of the emotion she's experiencing in that moment. That's the kind of problem is like, I, I think they equate affirmations to condoning the behavior or, or the emotion or the thought. It's not, I'm validating that they're experiencing emotion in this moment. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that it, it's an accurate thought towards the situation. I just say, you know, whether it's saying, a simple, yeah, it sounds really hard that you're having to go through that right now, you know, and of course the, tell me a little bit more about that so I can gather some more information. But ultimately that's kind of what the direction I took it in the therapy. I was just like, you know, what, why, tell me why that's important to you. And then it went into what, you know, well, yeah, I mean, could there be any other way that you could get to that point where you have that body image without using methamphetamine? And then of course you start talking about, oh, I guess I could work out, you know, all these other things. I'm like, and once again, who am I to say that's bad? You or, didn't give her, and, and you didn't give the advice if she, if she comes to the conclusion mm-hmm. that through exercise and nutrition, she can get to that weight. Right. And it wasn't you pointing that out or you tromping on her view of herself and telling her, no, you're healthy. It's you asking questions Mm -hmm. while staying aligned with her. You're, you're not, not telling her how to think you're, you're okay. This is where she is. This is where her mindset is. And you're asking her questions. Actually, that's, that's a skill that you're using that I think a lot of therapists maybe misunderstand is that like asking questions is usually seen as a means to receive information. Like uh-huh. I, my, my intent in asking you a question is that you have information that I need. So I ask you a question, you give me the information, but like really your intent behind asking those qu- questions isn't f- for you to receive information. It's for you to provoke thinking right. in the client that right. then allows for them to come up with a, maybe a, a, a more effective option. It's a, there's a completely different intent behind why you would ask questions that way. Well, right. And, and I think the other therapist's intent was, well, and look, if the client feels comfortable being 20 pounds heavier than when she was using, using methamphetamine. Great. great yeah, I, cool. I don't, it's also none of my business. Yeah. Um, but this client wasn't, that's the point. Okay. So I wasn't counseling the client on losing weight. Like it had, <laughs> gain or lose. It doesn't matter to me. That's, that's not the point of it. I want you to function. I don't, I want you to no longer have any functional impairment. And for her, that body image as shallow as some people may think it is. And I I don't know if it's shallow, you know, like her, the way she viewed herself and how she felt comfortable in her skin was this particular body image, this particular, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that going the other direction as well. Like I'm fine with either way, but this is where the client was. And rather than me just telling her, no, 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 you're good right now. Well, no, <laughs> that's, that's, that's silly. You know it what is. I mean? I'm not, and I'm trying to count it. So I get it. I get it. So that's why again, um, I, yeah, we, I mean, if you are uh, doing that as a therapist, knock it off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he kind of has a point there. If that's, if that's what, what's happening. <clears throat> okay. This is our last clip here. But the pitfalls with therapy don't just lie with the fact that so many therapists are bad and stupid. Before we can even get to the point of analyzing the quality of the therapist, we have to deal with the problems inherent to the very practice of therapy itself. And the biggest one is this, that many people go to therapy simply because they want to talk about themselves. It feeds their narcissistic impulse to talk incessantly and think incessantly about themselves. This is the real reason why therapy is so popular in our culture and why it becomes more popular with each generation. It's not that uh, mental health is declining. It's that narcissism is increasing. And narcissism is not so much a mental health problem as a character flaw. 
I'll have you know, Matt, it is not a character flaw at all. <laughs> this is primarily the mad rush to therapy. <laughs> Lots of narcissists who are willing to pay by the hour just to just to, to have the privilege of having a 60-minute block reserved exclusively to conversation focused on themselves. But this is exactly the opposite of what many of these people need. What they need instead is to stop talking about themselves, stop thinking about themselves, stop dwelling on their own petty problems, stop trying to make every obstacle they face into some great saga of trial and triumph, and instead just go live their lives with some humility and sense of perspective. The best advice anyone can give you for 90% of the problems that you bring to a therapist is this, get over yourself and quit whining, go for a jog, get a hobby, do something more, just don't buy goats. Do something more interesting with your life than constantly analyzing your own feelings. Your feelings aren't that interesting or important. Are you sad? Are you stressed out? Well, welcome to human existence. So here's the thing, though. You, you said the best advice you could give to somebody is go do all the things that he just said. But that's exactly what like I think we're saying therapists are not supposed to do. I, I, I get it. Like. Uh, get what he's saying. And if it was that easy, well then yeah, we would therapists would not need to exist. Like you could just tell somebody, Hey, stop it, you know, and move on. Uh, well, of course. Yeah. That's, that's really easy. Uh, but like, and, and ultimately is that where we want them to get? Of course we do. Like if you think about somebody who has a significant history of trauma, right? Whatever it is. And they come to you and they say, Hey, I've got trauma and they have all the meet all the criteria of PTSD. Ultimately, we want them to get over it, don't we? Yeah. Would you ever Indeed. tell that to a client? Not like that. <laughs> yeah, you need to get over yeah. it. Like th- that's what I'm saying. I so, would help them build skills such that they could. Right, right. That's that. That's the thing. They 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 have these symptoms, and we're we're and, and again, they wouldn't be coming to us if if that because I, I think what Matt's missing here is that that thinking process, that logical A, B, C, D, whatever thinking process is, and I'm not talking about ABC model. I'm just saying from A to D it is inherent in everybody that everybody thinks that exact same way. But unfortunately people have cognitive distortions, right? And, and, and sometimes emotional regulation problems or really horrible social skills. And, and outside of, outside of somebody helping them learn those skills, they really, they really don't, I mean, they're not going to be able to do that. So that's what therapists do is helping them learn those skills, practicing those skills, figuring out the ones they want, and then reinforcing those over time. Exactly. And just to follow up on that last point, um, he's obviously, you know, when he's when he's making the case that. I don't know if he said the majority, but he, he, he painted with some pretty broad brush strokes by saying that most of these people in therapy are bloviating narcissists that like, like to consume 60 minutes to talk about themselves when they, according to his, um, his, uh, advice is to, you know, kind of get over themselves and to, you know, get out and do something and, you know, maybe what, what, whatever it is, find purpose and meaning, whatever. Um, super broad brush strokes. Right. But like, if I want to find some common ground here with Matt, there are clients like that. I've, I've had them. I've had, I've had clients and it, 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 it usually takes me maybe longer than it should for me to identify that like, okay, this, this person, 
no matter my approach, they, they seem to just keep bringing up the same problems. It's always all about them. Um, and you know, they, and they're genuinely character disordered, narcissistic people that, that, uh, fit the description of, of what he's talking about. Right. And again, that's where it's, it's my job as a therapist. If I have somebody like that to, to identify that. And then it is, it can be really tough working with somebody like he's describing with a narcissistic, you know, a dark triad type client, Mm -hmm. really tough working with them. But you know, you, I mean, I'm telling you something you already know it can be done. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's different how you do it. It sure is. You got to do a change, but see, and the problem with, I think that he would have with that. Um, and this is where we depart away from him is that a, a constant moral code is not the answer for that. Like a, a, a one size fits all solution for that is not going to be how that's solved. Cause like, as we've talked about with dark tread clients before, you got to take a completely different approach. And I mean, the last part of this, he kind of goes on. And this is one thing I will say though, is we, that's, that should be our metric. I think that's one thing that we've kind of established here today. A client is coming into you and you have determined they have, they meet criteria for some sort of functional impairment, because if they don't, why are you seeing them? Right now, if they have that functional impairment, you are working with them to reduce symptoms of whatever disorder it is to restore them to functionality. That's what you're attempting to do with the idea that you have an ethical obligation to move them towards successful discharge. Like the idea that the client's going to see you for eternity once a week, that's unethical in my opinion. I mean, I do check in clients with sessions every few months and I've worked with them for years and years. That's different. I don't even charge them for that crap, but, um, like what usually what I'm saying is because he goes on, he talks about Instapot, you know, those cooking things that everybody got. I don't know if you knew this, they're going out of business though. And the reason why is because they made such a good product. Everybody went and bought an Instapot. They don't break. You don't have to replace them. And they just work for years. They, they, they like those wool socks, bro. How do they not go out of business? They made such a good product that now they're no longer going out of business or they're no, or they are going out of business as a result of that. (laughs) And he says, therapists do the opposite. Like we never try to get them to the point where they can function on their own. So we don't destroy our revenue stream, which I will say, I was like, Oh no, 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 no. That that's never how a therapist should think. If you're good at what you do, clients will come to you. Absolutely. Right. So you should be working on discharge almost like you should be thinking about that all the time and you have an ethical obligation. So within the shortest period of time to help that person restore functionality. So that that's a yes. If all I'm ever doing is talking to somebody for 60 minutes a week and validating, 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 validating and never get to any sort of like practical application of skills and reduction in symptoms. Well, yeah, that's an unethical therapist that doesn't really care about their trade or what they're trying to do. And, and the clients relying on them and they're probably not getting any better. And they probably are getting worse over time because they're just regurgitating the same nonsense out loud that they're going over in their head. And then now being validated by another person that reinforces that. So they just keep doing it, leading probably to more dysfunction in their life. So I, I, I mean, 
So as far as our industry goes, I mean, whether or not you give a crap about Matt Walsh's opinion, <laughs> I say this is kind of the side effect of when we're not taking ourselves seriously as a profession, we get people that, you know, have a pretty substantial audience now pr- talking shit on us. And and to some degree, have good points when people are going to listen like, yeah, therapists do do that. You know, I'm like, gosh, dang it. So look, everybody, we owe it to ourselves to improve our industry and do better with some of these things and not not just. We move towards clients, towards functionality, not just simply validating their concerns. And in the interest of not blaming external sources for our own lot in life, (laughs) this isn't a like, again, whether or not you like Matt Walsh or not, it's independent of that. It's, it's the reputation that we suck is out there. It's upon us. It's incumbent upon us to do different, to hold ourselves to a higher standard and to do better. Yeah. And to, change that opinion through, um, actual outcomes. And Matt Walsh, if you ever hear this and you want to have a conversation, we'll just invite us on your show because we'd never be on our show. Cause we're too big for you. Yeah, so jump, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's a pretty effective response to him. Huh? I think so. Okay. Send, All right. send it to him people. I, uh, yeah, yeah. Let him know. I'm sure he'll care. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks everybody.